Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli podcast. This is a podcast all about Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you, as always, for listening. Apologies for getting this episode out to you a little bit late. I mentioned the last episode that I was traveling for work over the weekend. I was in Nashville, Tennessee, which is a beautiful city for those of you who haven't been there before. They have great food, great people, it's clean, and of course, lots and lots of great music. Shout out to Matt Laneve. I'm sure most of you already follow Matt on Twitter, but if you don't, please give him a follow. He is even nicer in person than he is online, which says a lot because he's even very nice online. He treated me to dinner on Monday night, even though he was a little bit under the weather, so that was really cool. One thing I never expected when I started this whole thing was that I would be part of this great community all over the world, to the point where, for a lot of big cities, if I'm traveling there, I probably know a Napoli fan now who I can reach out to for restaurant recommendations or live entertainment recommendations. I went to check out a Nashville Predators game because Matt said it was a great experience, and he was right, so that was really, really cool. Anyhow, I have two parts for you on today's show. In part one, I will give you my thoughts on Napoli's 3-0 win over Cremonese. And in part two, I will preview our match on Friday against Sassuolo. So let's begin with that match against Cremonese on Sunday. As I'm sure you're well aware by now, Napoli won 3-0 on goals from Kvica Kvaraschelia, Victor Osimen, and Elif Elmas. It was our sixth consecutive win in Serie A, and it was our ninth consecutive league win at the Maradona. Neither Ottavio Bianchi nor Alberto Bigon won nine consecutive matches at home during their Scudetto winning campaigns of the late 80s and early 90s. 
In the era of three points for a win, only one team has earned more points through 22 rounds. Juventus had 60 points in the 2018-19 season, and in 2013-14, Juve also had 29 points through 22 rounds. Of course, Juve won the Scudetto in both of those seasons. With Inter's surprising draw to Sampdoria on Monday, we are now 15 points clear of our nearest rival, For those of you who are doing the math, that means the magic number is 11, meaning if we win 11 of our remaining matches, we are guaranteed to win the Scudetto. Technically, the magic number is actually 12, because if Inter won all 16 of their remaining matches, they'd be on 92 points, and if we won 11 matches and lost the other 5, we'd also be on 92 points. There was a recent rule change that states that if there is a tie at the top of the table, then head-to-head record would not determine the champion, rather there would be a playoff. But as my good friend Michele Iosono Monteza on Twitter often points out, and I think correctly, it's not realistic to assume that Inter will win 16 straight matches. We just saw them draw points to Sampdoria. It also may not be realistic to assume that Napoli will lose 5 matches either. Even with 4 losses and a draw, then the magic number really would go down to 11. And if we assume that Inter are going to lose or draw a couple of matches themselves, then that magic number would go down even further to say 8 or 9 games, maybe even 7 games. But enough about that, before the Cremonese match, Spalletti specifically told us not to make any predictions of any kind, and here I am doing a scenario analysis on the magic number. I can't help it, to be honest, and I'm sure a lot of you can say the same, but if you are doing the maths, just make sure you are also enjoying the moment. So let me give you my thoughts on the match itself, and I want to start with my three keys to the match, which I think we just sort of barely achieved. My first key to the match was that we needed to get revenge on Cremonese for eliminating us from the Coppa Italia, which is something that both Alex Meret and Luciano Spalletti talked about before the match. This is the one that I have no doubt that we did in fact achieve. As I said, we won the match fairly convincingly. Once again, we dominated possession. We had 66% of the ball compared to Cremonese's 34%. Throughout the match, we looked like the more likely team to score, though I would say that we didn't create as many high-quality chances as we typically do. That was reflected in our XG of 1.8, so once again, we outperformed our XG, which suggests that we're converting the chances that typically, over a longer period of time, we probably would not convert most of the time. I think both the Cavada and Elmas goals probably fall into those categories. I'll come back to those goals in a moment. However, we also held Cremonese to so few chances that even if we only scored one goal, we probably still would have won this match. Cremonese's XG for the match was 0.2. They had the odd chance or half chance here and there. Marco Benassi had a powerful shot from outside the area that hit the target, but it was a fairly comfortable save for Alex Meret. Emanuele Valeri and Felix Afenegian both had speculative efforts miss the target as well. But that was really it, so I think it's safe to say that we got our revenge, and I think Spalletti put his money where his mouth was with the squad that he fielded for this match. As I mentioned in my preview, what I took away from the Spezia match was that Spalletti was taking these matches against lower table teams seriously, so I wasn't surprised that he played the exact same starting 11 against Cremonese that he played against Spezia. Now, I was expecting Matteo Politano to start over Chucky Lozano on the right wing, but Spalletti very clearly got that decision correct. 
I think this could well have been his best performance all season, and I'm inclined to think that his improved performances are directly related to him playing more consistently. This was the fourth consecutive league match that Lozano has started, which is the first time that's happened all season, given all of the rotation between him and Politano. Now granted, he only played the first half against Spezia, but I think that was largely due to the fact that he was on a yellow card, and that yellow card was more on Di Lorenzo for the pass he made to Lozano on that play. I think Lozano's most important contribution was very early in this match when Sar Nicolas Cross somehow bounced through the crowd in the area and found Johan Vasquez, who appeared to be completely unmarked about 12 yards from the goal, but Lozano came out of nowhere and cleared the danger before Vasquez could get the shot off. Now, Lozano may not have scored in this match, but that clearance, to me at least, is just as good as a goal. The match was scoreless at the time, and there was a good chance that if Vasquez got that shot off, then Cremonese would have taken a 1-0 lead. Instead, it remained scoreless, and we took the lead about 12 minutes later. And it wasn't the only time that Lozano tracked back to help defend. He did it again in the second half to force a corner kick, though that one was not really a goal-scoring chance, rather he prevented the cross from being played into the area. Also, he was very involved in the attack. It was Lozano's cross that Cavada chased down before scoring the opening goal of the match. He drew a yellow card on Vasquez after a very tidy headed give and go with Piotr Zielinski. He played a nice little chested layoff to Zielinski before Mario Rui's low shot was stopped by Karnaseki. In the 34th minute, he made a nice little dribble on the right wing before picking out Osimen with a very nice cross into the area, but Osimen got underneath it. And on a couple of occasions, he pressed high to win back possession, including on the chance that he had in the second half. Ultimately, that shot was straight at Karnaseki, but at least he tested the goalkeeper. So it was an excellent showing from Lozano. I completely agree with Raf and Raf that he was the beast of the match, and I'll be very curious to see if he maintains his starting role with the schedule that we have coming up. With the schedule picking up again, I think we should expect Spalletti to start rotating a little bit more now. We have Sassuolo coming up on Friday, which is only five days after this match. We're going to preview that one in part two, but that is slightly less rest than we normally have. Then we have Eintracht Frankfurt in the Champions League resuming on Tuesday, which is only four days after the Sassuolo match. And then we have Empoli on the Saturday, which is four days after the Frankfurt game. Given who the opponents are, and given that Lozano is currently in form, I'm expecting Spalletti to start Politano on Friday so that Lozano is fresh for the Champions League. One final comment on Lozano before I move on. Shortly after the match, he got a tattoo on his right foot of what appears to be a Dutch windmill with Vesuvio in the background. <clears throat> One final comment on Lozano before I move on. Shortly after the match, a picture surfaced of Lozano getting a tattoo on his right foot of what appears to be a Dutch windmill with Vesuvio in the background. One would assume that those are tributes to the European clubs that he's played for. Of course, Napoli acquired Lozano from PSV. Now, assuming those were just released and not taken earlier, I do find it very curious that he would go get a tattoo on his foot in the middle of the season. That might be even more reason to play Politano on Friday, because even if they do bandage his foot, tattoos do take a little bit of time to heal. Okay, my second key to the match was that we needed to take advantage of the set piece. I suppose you can say that we achieved this one because our second goal was from a corner kick. 
The play started with a corner taken by Mario Rui to Di Lorenzo at the first post. That's something I wanted to highlight because we've seen that play a number of times over the last few matches. Clearly, it's something they have been working on, and we've used it on both sides of the park as well. The basic idea is for Di Lorenzo to attack the cross at the first post and flick it into the danger area. In some cases, it may just need a touch either from one of our players or from an opposition player in front of his own goal. Di Lorenzo did that against Spezia and his header flashed wide of the far post. It just needed that final touch. We saw a similar play in the first half of this match where the corner was a little bit short, so Di Lorenzo missed the flick, but the ball still bounced off an unsuspecting Osimhen and forced Karnaseki to make a rather easy save. The other reason a play like this is effective is because it could end up on target, which is what happened immediately prior to the second goal. Karnaseki made a great save, but he could only push it towards the second post, and then Kim made that incredibly brave play to head the ball back in front of the goal, which Spalletti commented on after the match, the willingness of the defender to put his body on the line. Osiman was waiting on the doorstep to tap in his 17th goal of the Serie A campaign. That was my final key to the match. Victor Osiman, he's now five goals clear of Adamola Lookman in the race for Capo Canoniere. I mentioned in my preview that with a goal in this match, he would become the first player to score in six consecutive Serie A matches since Gonzalo Higuain did it in the 2015-16 campaign. And he did just that. And in Victor's case... All 8 goals were scored from open play, while Higuain also scored 8 goals in 6 matches, 2 of his 8 goals were from the penalty spot. Now, the reason I say that we just barely achieved our 3 keys to the match is because Osiman's only goal was a tap-in from the goal line. It was probably the easiest goal he scored all season, and while he's always effective in different ways... I actually thought Vlad Kirikes did an admirable job of stopping Osiman, particularly given that he is 33 years of age. Now in truth, Osiman didn't get a whole lot of service and in my opinion, it's because we didn't actually play that well despite the final scoreline. I thought our passing and our finishing were actually quite poor in this match. I counted about 10 passes that either missed the target or were very risky. In the first 3 minutes alone, both Lobotka and Zielinski mishit their return passes to Mario Rui and the ball rolled out to touch. Angisa did the same thing shortly before the break. We saw Lozano and Angisa play heavy through balls to Di Lorenzo and Cavada respectively. In both cases, the ball rolled straight out for a goal kick. When Osimen was one-on-one with a defender, either in the area or when the long ball was on, we seemed to overhit our passes to him. And then there were a number of risky passes. Di Lorenzo's header to Meret, which he just barely got to. Mario Rui's back pass that forced Kim to clear the ball straight out for a throw-in. And Cavada and Mario Rui both played dangerous passes into the middle of the park inside our own half. Now it also didn't help that match official Luca Massimi and the entire officiating crew appeared to miss what I thought were two very clear decisions. The first was Alex Ferrari's foul on Cavada just before the end of the first half. To me, it was clear that Ferrari clipped Cavada's ankle. As Patrick Hendricks said on the English World Feed, typically when a player throws his hands up in the air so quickly, it's more an admission of guilt than one of innocence. You could also tell by the look on Cavada's face, when a player dives and doesn't get the call, they usually just get up and get over it pretty quickly and go back to playing. But Cavada looked genuinely perplexed that this decision did not go his way. But what was really unusual about all of this was that the VAR did not call Massimi to review the play 
on the pitch side monitor. It's perfectly understandable that the official on the pitch might not have seen a call like this in real time, but the VAR has the benefit of the replay. I'm sure the VAR looked at the play and decided that there was no foul, but I think there was enough contact to warrant at least asking Massimi to have a look for himself. And if he still decides that it's not a penalty, then so be it. The decision that I thought was even more blatant of an error was to not show Vasquez a second yellow card for his foul on his fellow countryman, Herving Lozano. This play happened early in the second half, and the replay showed that he was very clearly late and that he very clearly stomped on Lozano's foot. I have a funny feeling that had Vasquez not been already cautioned, then he would have been cautioned for this tackle when the tackle should really be evaluated in isolation. Now this one is entirely on Massimi because VAR cannot review yellow cards of any kind and that includes second yellow cards. VAR can only assess whether a foul should have been a straight red card and this was clearly not a red card offense. So we didn't get the call yet we still won the match and in the end it was a quite comfortable win. Now we have to note that we are talking about the last place team in the league, but historically, those non-calls might have caused Napoli to have a meltdown. Both of those non-calls happened while Napoli were only up by a score of 1-0. Instead, we kept playing and eventually we got the second and third goals. So this is yet another reminder of the winning mentality that Spalletti has instilled in this club. And it wasn't only the victory that proved this, it was all of those little individual plays throughout the match. It was Lobotka fighting to win the ball back after Cavada gave it away in the middle of the park. It was Kim putting his body on the line to head the ball back in front of the goal. It was Di Lorenzo pressing high and winning a slide tackle in the 95th minute of the match. And it was the energy that Matthias Oliveira, Eli Felmas, Tangi Ndombele, Giacomo Raspadori and even Diego Demet brought off the bench. Some of these guys have been starved for minutes, so they are just dying for a chance to play, even if it is only the final 10 minutes of a match that is already won. But that ability to stay composed and overcome adversity is a trait of champions. Another trait of champions is that they have players who can step up when you need them to. We've seen Osimen and Cavada each do that a number of times this season, and Cavada did it again in this match. That goal came out of absolutely nothing. Most players would have waited to see if that ball would have gone out of play for a corner kick. Now, judging by the spin of the ball, I don't think it would have, but even if he had waited, that would have allowed more Cremonese players to get back to help defend. Instead, he played the ball right away and created that opportunity. Now, Karnaseki didn't exactly cover himself in glory, but Cavada shot through the legs of Ser Nicola, so Karnaseki might have seen the ball late. He's also a very tall goalkeeper, so those shots on the ground are very difficult to stop. But take nothing away from the performance of Karnaseki. In fact, if we were to sell Meret this summer, which is a possibility given the rumors of potential interest in him, I would definitely consider Karnaseki as a potential replacement, perhaps just behind Guglielmo Vicario. Now, I'm sure you've already heard it by now, but Cavada scored in the 22nd minute of the 22nd round on his 22nd birthday. He now has 9 goals and 9 assists in Serie A, which is really remarkable for a player in his first season in the league. Finally, the third trait of a championship team 
is depth and we have that as well. Whether you attribute it to good fortune or good management, we have not had many injuries all at once this season. I would posit that we deserve to not have many injuries all at once given the previous two seasons, but for the most part, we've only lost one or two players at a time, some who didn't feature at all like Diego Dem and Salvatore Sirigu, and others who feature quite often. We lost Osimen for four rounds, but Simeone and Raspadori stepped up in his absence. Unfortunately, it seems like Raspadori could miss time. He was forced to leave training on Wednesday after pulling a muscle, and then he underwent further tests on Thursday that confirmed that he has a second grade thigh strain, which usually requires about four to six weeks to recover. But again, we still have Simeone and we still have Osimen. We lost Amir Rachmani for six rounds, but Juan Jesus stepped up in his absence. And we lost Cavada for three rounds, but Elif Elmas started in his absence. And that was really the start of the resurgence for Elmas. After scoring the third goal in this match, Elmas now has six goals and one assist on the season, and five of those goals and the one assist happened from the first game Cavada missed with the back injury and onward. He's in incredible form at the moment. He only needs one more goal to tie his career best of seven goals in all competitions, which he set last season, and he's tied his career best for most goals in any domestic competition, but it is worth noting that the first time he did it was with Rabotniki Skopje in the North Macedonian League, so that hardly even counts. His confidence is through the roof right now, and we know it because only a player with a ton of confidence can score the goal that he scored in this match. That finish, to hit the ball on the half volley as it's bouncing away from you, is extremely difficult to pull off. It's way more difficult than he made it seem there. And what I liked about this play overall is that he didn't force it. The play started with Lobotka intercepting an errant pass at around midfield. By the way, Lobotka had another phenomenal match. I feel like Spalletti was giving him that big hug on behalf of all of us because we all feel the same way about him. Then Lobotka passed the ball to Elmas. He carried the ball to the edge of the Cremonese area and he thought about shooting, but he recognized that the shot wasn't on, so he turned back and passed the ball to Di Lorenzo. The return pass from Di Lorenzo was beautiful as well. It was perfectly weighted for Elmas to run onto. And then that finish by Elmas, the way he struck through the ball so cleanly to generate all of that power was really something else. So this was another well-deserved victory and one that got us that much closer to that coveted third Scudetto. That will do for part one. In part two, I'll preview our match on Friday against Sassuolo. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome to part two of the Forza Napoli podcast. If you like the show, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash Forza Napoli pod. It's entirely voluntary. There are no set tiers, but it does help us to continue to produce content both on the podcast and at ForzaNapoliPress.com. 
Okay, so let's preview the match against Sassuolo on Friday. The reason this match is being played on Friday is because Napoli play in the Champions League on Tuesday, so that will give us that extra little bit of rest. Aside from Spalletti, who may need to rotate his squad in view of the Champions League, the players will have to put that match against Eintracht Frankfurt aside for the time being and focus squarely on Sassuolo, because otherwise, this could well be a banana skin match. We happen to be catching Sassuolo during their best run of form all season. They are unbeaten in their last four matches. The 1-1 draw to Monza wasn't a great result, but they hammered Milan 5-2. Of course, Milan were reeling a little bit, but it felt like we finally saw the quality of the Sassuolo side during that match. They responded with another impressive victory, beating Atalanta 1-0. For me, that was an even more impressive result than the win over Milan, because Atalanta were one of the most informed sides in the league at the time. Also, it seemed like Gasparini had gone back to his old ways of playing attacking football. Atalanta went into that match having scored 19 goals in their previous 5, including 8 against Salernitana and 3 against Juventus, so it was really impressive for Sassuolo to shut them out. It was only the second time this season that Atalanta's opponent kept them off the score sheet. Lazio were the other team to do it. And then in the last round, Sassuolo drew Udinese 2-2, which was another decent result considering the circumstances, namely that Sassuolo fell behind twice in the match, and they lost their best player early in the match due to injury. Granted, Udinese have been in dreadful form themselves, they had only won one of their previous 13 matches before that draw, so a draw might have been a decent result for both sides. With this unbeaten run, Sassuolo moved up from 17th in the table to 15th in the table, which just tells you how difficult of a season it's been for them that they had to move up to 15th. They're actually tied with Lecce and Fiorentina in 13th place. They're all on 24 points, but until everyone has played against everyone, we use goal differential as the tiebreaker, and Sassuolo have the worst goal differential of the three at minus seven. Prior to this run, Sassuolo had lost 8 of their previous 10 matches and were in 17th place with only 16 points, which was only 7 points more than Hellas Verona had in the final relegation position. Ironically, Sassuolo remain only 7 points clear of the relegation zone, as Hellas Verona have also picked up 2 wins and 2 draws in their last 4 matches. That's caused quite a bit of congestion at the bottom of the table. Hellas Verona, who seemed destined for relegation, are now only 2 points behind Spezia, who just fired Luca Gotti. They're only 4 points behind Salernitana, who just fired Davide Nicola for the second time. Actually, it was Hellas Verona and their new signing, Cyril Ngonj, who put the final nail in the coffin for Nicola. And then you have those three teams that I mentioned, Sassuolo, Fiorentina, and Lecce on 24 points. I went off on a bit of a tangent there, but if you're wondering what's happening at the bottom of the table, that is your update. And I didn't mention the two clubs at the very bottom, Sampdoria and Cremonese. They both still seem destined for relegation, but you never know. There's still plenty of time to turn it all around. Back to Sassuolo, it will be very difficult for them to extend their unbeaten streak to 5 matches. Not only are they coming up against the best team in the league, but as I mentioned, they'll have to play this match without their best player. Domenico Berardi was forced to leave the Udinese match after appearing to tweak something in the inner thigh or groin area on his left leg. Judging by reports, it seems to be a fairly minor injury, but he's still expected to be out for 2-3 to three weeks. 
Jeremy Tolian is also out injured. He's nursing a thigh muscle strain, which has forced Dionisi to shuffle his back line a little bit. So with that, let's get to the starting lineups. For Napoli, I think Luciano Spalletti will line up in his usual 4-3-3 formation with Alex Meret in goal. As I mentioned in part 1, I think Spalletti will have to start rotating some players with this match on a Friday and the Eintracht Frankfurt match on a Tuesday, but I'm not expecting any changes to the back line. I think we'll see Amir Rachmani and Kim Min-Jae start at center back, Giovanni Di Lorenzo at right back, and Mario Rui at left back. As I've mentioned a few times now, I believe Matthias Oliveira is the preferred left back for the Champions League, which is why I have Mario Rui starting again. I am expecting one change in the midfield, and if I had to pick one player to replace, it would have to be Piotr Zielinski, which is not a slight against Zielinski. I just think Lobotka is irreplaceable and pretty much has to play every match right now. Hopefully he doesn't have to play the full 90 minutes, though I think Spalletti has to be very careful with Lobotka's time, because he is such an important player for us, and he is the one guy that doesn't really have a proper backup. I was encouraged by Diego Demis play off the bench against Cremonese, but he is still a clear step down from Lobotka, so we have to be very careful not to let him get hurt. I would love to see Tanguy and Dombele give Angisa a rest. Angisa has been a little bit out of form since returning from the World Cup, but Spalletti keeps on playing him, and he keeps on playing him for the full 90 minutes. So I think the one change in the midfield will be for Elif Elmas to start over Zielinski as the attacking midfielder. It's too bad that Giacomo Raspadori picked up that injury in training because I think this would have been the perfect spot for him to start on the left wing and give Chavicha Kvaraschelia a break. But with Raspadori out, I think Cavada will have to start on the left wing. Alternatively, we could play Elmas on the left wing and then start someone like Tangi and Dombele over Piotr Zielinski. But I think Elmas is going to play in the midfield. As I mentioned earlier, I think this is the match that Matteo Politano finally returns to the starting 11 after sitting out a few matches. That way Lozano, who's currently in better form, will be fresh for the Champions League game on Tuesday. Finally, as much as I would love to see Giovanni Simeone play, I think you have to continue to roll with the hot hand of Victor Osimen. Of course, you want to have Osimen fresh for Tuesday as well, but after playing only one match a week for nearly a month now, I think he can handle two starts in five days, but if we do that, then we probably do have to play Cholito against Empoli after the Frankfurt match. For Sassuolo, Dionisi will line up in a 4-3-3 formation with Andrea Consigli in goal. Martin Ehrlich and Ruan Tresoldi have started each of Sassuolo's last three matches at centre-back, so I would expect them to start again with Gianmarco Ferrari providing an option off the bench. As I mentioned, with that injury to Tolian, Dionisi has shuffled around his back line, particularly his fullbacks. Prior to the Tolian injury, Rogerio was the locked-in starter at left-back and Tolian was the locked-in starter at right-back. Since then, we've seen numerous different combinations. Against Milan, we saw Ricardo Marquita at left-back and Rogerio at right-back. Then against Atalanta, we saw Rogerio at left-back and Nedim Zortea at right-back. And finally, against Udinese, we saw Marquita at left-back and Zortea at right-back now. I'm almost positive Rogerio will start. He didn't play against Udinese because he was suspended for yellow card accumulation, so it wasn't because of form or because of an injury. 
What it really comes down to is, do you play Rogerio at left back and Zortea at right back, or do you play Marquita at left back and Rogerio at right back? Since Rogerio is naturally a left back, I'm inclined to go with the former. The midfield three should be fairly predictable. Pedro Obiang should start in the center of the midfield with Davide Fratesi to his left and Mateo Enrique to his right. We could potentially see Maxime Lopez start in the center of the midfield, but it seems like Sassuolo are being very careful with his return. Unfortunately, he picked up an MCL sprain during a friendly against Marseille in December. He returned to the squad in mid-January, but he's only made two substitute appearances since then. There's also some uncertainty up top. Armand Loriente is a sure thing to start on the left wing, but striker and right wing are a little bit debatable. Gregoire Defrel has started at striker for the last four rounds because Andrea Pinamonti was out with a thigh muscle injury. Pinamonti returned for the Udinese match and made an appearance off the bench, so it is quite possible that he could return to the starting 11. However, I am going to stick with Defrel at striker. Finally, I mentioned that Berardi injury, he was replaced by Nadim Bayrami, so Bayrami is expected to start on the right wing. So those are our starting lineups, next let's get to our three keys to the match. My first key to the match is that we cannot be fooled by Sassuolo's position in the table, which I guess is just another way of saying don't underestimate your opponent. Sassuolo have had a difficult season as far as injuries go. Hamid Jr. Traore missed the first nine rounds of Serie A with a metatarsal fracture, which is basically a broken foot. Mert Muldur missed the entire first half of the season with a fractured ankle, so he's only now getting back to full fitness. Gregoire Defrel missed 11 rounds with a broken foot as well. Judging by the amount of time he missed, his injury must have been more severe than Traore's. At the same time, Domenico Berardi missed 8 matches due to 2 different thigh injuries. Of course, he is out again for another couple of weeks, so it's been a really difficult season for Italy's right winger. As I mentioned earlier, Maxime Lopez missed a fair bit of time with a knee injury, and Andrea Pinamonti missed 4 rounds with a muscle problem. At one point, Sassuolo were missing 4 regular starters for an extended period of time, Surely that would have impacted their results, and for me, that is clearly why they are so low in the table compared to previous seasons. Now, while they still have some injuries, I mentioned Tolian and Berardi, Muldur seems to still be out as well, they appear to be getting back to full fitness. Even if guys like Maxime Lopez and Pinamonti don't start, they are still very high quality options who can make a real impact off the bench, so that's something we need to be mindful of. In that same vein, my second key to the match is that we need to be mindful of Sassuolo's depth. However, I'm not only referring to Sassuolo's recovering players, I'm also referring to the improvements they made in January. I think Sassuolo quietly had a very good winter mercato. A few talented players left the club. Traore was loaned to Bournemouth, Khan Ehan was loaned to Galatasaray, and Georgios Kyriakopoulos was loaned to Bologna. But they loaned in Zortea from Atalanta to replace Kyriakopoulos, and they loaned Bayrami from Empoli to provide more depth as an attacking midfielder, or as it turns out, as a winger. Pretty much any signing from Empoli is a good one these days. They've done such a good job of scouting and developing talent. They still have guys like Vicario, Fabiano Parisi, Tommaso Baldanzi, Nicolo Cambiaghi, Emmanuel Vignato, Roberto Piccoli. These are all guys 
who I think will at the very least be sold to mid-table clubs, and in some cases will be sold to top clubs, but like I said, I think Zortea and Bayrami will both be in the starting 11, so those are guys to look out for. Obviously, it's tough to lose a player like Berardi, but I'm not expecting a significant drop in quality. My final key to the match is that we need to score early and often. As you can see, I think Spalletti will field a fairly strong squad. That's partly because I think Spalletti will take full advantage of his five substitutions, which is something he's been doing all season. As I said with OC men, we've only played one match a week for the last month or so, so everyone should be reasonably fresh. Ideally, we score a couple of goals in the first half, maybe add a third early in the second half, and then that would allow us to make a number of changes about midway through the second half. Then we could replace Osimen with Simeone, we could replace Anguisa with Ndomble, maybe even Lobotka with Demme, and give two of, say, Oliveira, Zielinski, and Lozano a 15-20 to 20 minute run ahead of the match on Tuesday. Either way, I think we're in a pretty strong position with a very deep squad, so even with the injury to Raspadori, Spalletti still has plenty of options and plenty of players at his disposal. For my prediction, I am going to go with a 2-0 Napoli victory. I'll give the first goal to Victor Osimhen. It's hard to not predict at least one goal from him with the form he's currently in. And I'm going to go out on a limb and give the second goal to Giovanni Di Lorenzo. He's come so close to scoring in each of our last two matches, so I feel like he is due for another goal. Sassuolo rarely concede more than two goals. Mind you, I said the same thing about Cremonese and we still put up three against them. Sassuolo are middle of the pack in terms of goals scored. They've only scored 26 goals through 22 rounds, so they're averaging about a goal per match. What's interesting about Sassuolo is they seem to spread their goals around. Fratesi, who's a midfielder, leads the way with five goals. Berardi and Lauriente both have four. Pinamonti has three, but he just got back from injury. Henrique has two, and then seven players have one goal apiece. So I look at this squad, and I struggle to see who's going to contribute the goals. Sure, they might score one, so a 2-1 or a 3-1 Napoli win are quite possible as well, but I do not see them scoring more than one goal. Sassuolo's XG is 28.1, so they're only slightly underperforming their XG, and what that tells you is they're not really creating many quality chances to begin with. Of course, anything is possible. We've had wild matches against Sassuolo prior to Dionisi showing up, but since he showed up, we've won quite comfortably, and I'm expecting this to be another comfortable win for Napoli. So that is where I will leave it. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please give us a rating or leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. As always, if you need to get a hold of me, you can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti5, and you can find the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pod. I will be back in a few days to review this match. I'm also hoping to get a guest on to preview the Frankfurt match, so stay tuned for what could be a very busy couple of days. But until then, I'm Joe Fischetti. Forza Napoli sempre! Sports Social Podcast Network.